I'm Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Monday Mindset Mindset Podcast, Podcast. where we share things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 104. And this week it is Terry's turn to choose a chapter from Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart. So, well, I say I wonder which chapter you're going to cover. I do actually know because we tell each other beforehand so that we can read through it ourselves and be prepared. But for the people at home, tell us which chapter you're going to cover today, Terry. Of course. Daisy, I chose chapter eight and its subtitle is Places We Go When We Fall Short. And I feel like the further we go into the book, the heavier the chapters get. The I was going to say, this is a heavy one. <laughs> it is. I took so many notes. So hopefully we can spark up some conversation through this. But I just have tons of notes because when you're trying to present Brene Brown's material, you want to put it in Brene Brown's words. And so I'm yeah, practically yeah, yeah. typing everything she says. Yeah, she says everything so perfectly mm-hmm. that you feel Anything less than her words just falls short, doesn't it? Absolutely. But this is, I mean, this is really her mainstay, isn't it? This it is. is. Her main <laughs> subject areas. So, That's right. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, when you're quoting Brene Brown on the topics of shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment, you kind of have to do it right. <laughs> um, so let's start by talking about shame because that's actually... I would say out of those four emotions, the one that she talks about the most in this chapter. But the way she talks about it, shame equals the sense that I am bad. So the focus is on the self, not the behavior. So when we do something that's problematic, we don't focus on the behavior, we focus on I am bad. It's not a driver of positive change because our resulting feelings basically is that I am flawed and unworthy of love and belonging. And an example would be, she uses, you take a test and you get an F on the test. If your response is shame-based, it would be, I'm so stupid. Got a bad grade, I am so stupid. So again, focused on self, not the behavior. Guilt is focused on the behavior. So it's not that I am bad, but that I did something bad. So guilt is the discomfort we feel when we evaluate that our behavior that we've done conflicts somehow with our values. So in the same example of getting an F on the test, instead of focusing on I am stupid, I might say something like, hmm, going out the night before the test instead of studying, that was stupid. So my behavior was problematic, not I am problematic or flawed. Again, the focus is on the behavior. And then this way, it can be the driver of positive change because we can change behavior. We can choose Mm. different behaviors. So shame does not drive positive change. Actually, she talks a lot in the chapter about how it actually just creates more problems. But guilt can actually drive some positive change. It's like the lesson learned so that we don't repeat it. Then humiliation equals... I have been belittled and put down by someone, leaving me feeling unworthy of connection and disgusted with myself. I believe that this was unfair and I didn't deserve it. And she goes in to talk more about this and and I will as well. Again, you can see how this is different than guilt or shame. So 
With shame, we believe that we deserve the unworthiness. But with humiliation, we believe that we did not deserve it. It is unjustly put upon us. And then embarrassment equals, I did something that makes me feel uncomfortable, but I know I'm not alone because everyone does these kinds of things. Embarrassment is typically a fleeting experience. It doesn't last really long. And sometimes it's even funny. We kind of laugh at our embarrassment. We tell each other our most embarrassing moments and they're funny. In the moment, they're not so funny, but So basically then Brene digs into shame more in depth and says there really are three things about shame. One is that we all have it. It's universal. Only people who don't experience shame are those who are basically lacking basic empathy or the ability to connect interpersonally. Yeah, I felt quite reassured by that, actually. Mm. (laughs) I think, you know, fair to say, look, you should feel shame sometimes. It's something we all feel unless you're basically a bit of a psychopath. <laughs> as, yes, as negative and problematic as it is, it is a normal human experience unless you're a sociopath, exactly. <laughs> number two, we're all afraid to talk about it. And number three, the less we talk about it, the more shame has power over us. So it thrives in secrecy and keeping it private. She gives the context, and I'm sure, Daisy, you'll talk about this more in our next chapter, but she talked about the idea that connection, feeling that we belong, and love are basically why we are here relationally. They are kind of driving forces for us. And these things help give us meaning to our lives. So shame is the fear of not connecting being seen as somehow unworthy for something that we've done or failed to do or have not accomplished, that this somehow makes us unworthy of connection. It's that voice that says, I am unlovable. I don't belong. So hopefully listeners can already hear how heavy shame is and why it's so problematic. Yeah. And and a note I made there was, she says that it shame needs us to believe we're alone Mm -hmm. leading on from what you said about how shame thrives on secrecy silence and judgment Mm -hmm. and it forces you into that corner and shuts you down and closes you in absolutely and keeps you away from doing the things that actually will help you get out of it Right. So shame is that intensely, this is her definition, I think, for her book that she came up with. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, or connection. And as you said, it requires secrecy, silence, and judgment to keep it brewing. And empathy and compassion are actually the antidotes to shame. Mm that in order to process through our shame and not stay in that shameful state, we need empathy and compassion. She also highlights this, I thought was kind of interesting, that shame is a social emotion. It happens between people, and therefore it also heals between people. And part of it is that it may even be just the perception of how people see me, but it's between people. And self-compassion is a necessary step toward healing shame. We need to be kind to ourselves before we can even share our story. So if we're not going to keep it in secret and keep it hidden and silent, 
we have to have some empathy for ourselves so that we can start to share our stories with others. It's a very vulnerable thing to do, though, isn't it? Is to share that shame. You can you can see why people don't want to take that risk. Absolutely. Because, yeah, one of the notes I've made is that if we share our shame with someone who responds with empathy, the shame dissipates. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> the fear is if we share our shame with someone who does not respond with mm-hmm. empathy, it's just going to get even worse. And that's mm-hmm. the last thing you want. So again, why we tend to keep it secret and hope Mm. we can just ride it out. So she then starts talking a little bit about self-compassion, which you know, Daisy, is one of my favorite topics. And she talks about Kristen Neff and her work in self-compassion. And her book, Self-Compassion, is one that I recommend to everyone. She seems to be the absolute key person when it comes to self-compassion. Absolutely. And... Kristen Neff's work, she talks about self-compassion really has three components that are necessary. Self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. Brene later talks about these, and there is an assessment that you can do on um, a website, but she talks about the fact that self-kindness is being warm and empathic when we struggle versus using self-judgment. Basically, not ignoring our experiences or using self-criticism to judge our experiences. And Brene Brown identifies later in this chapter that this one is the hardest one for her. She can look at others with kindness and and have a lot of supportive things to say for other people, but that she still struggles even at this point in the self-kindness. The next component of self-compassion is common humanity versus self-isolation. This is really that place where we recognize that everyone suffers and experiences feelings of inadequacy rather than something that just happens to me. So shame means it's just you, keep it to yourself. And common humanity says, hey, everyone experiences this. You can actually connect and relate to people around this experience. Yeah, and we talked about that last week, didn't Mm -hmm. we? The difference between compassion and pity and Mm -hmm. compassion and and empathy and sympathy and this concept of near enemy. That's right. And then the third component is mindfulness versus over-identification. So being in a state of mindfulness about the things that we're struggling with is to be in a non-judgmental, receptive mind state in which we observe our thoughts and feelings just as they are. We don't judge them. We don't criticize them. We just kind of hold them up and we don't work on suppressing them, which of course most of us have learned to do. Mm -hmm. Uncomfortable, don't want to see this in ourselves, push it down. We can't ignore our pain and feel compassion for it at the same time. And I think that's an important concept. Also, it does not help if we get caught up in the negativity of the thoughts and feelings because it just grows them. But instead to recognize I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling pain because of what's happened versus getting wrapped up in the negativity. She and her research team then came up with four steps built into shame resilience. What helps us to not kind of fall into that state of shame? And she said that these four steps don't necessarily happen in this order, but they all need to happen. First one is recognizing shame and identifying the triggers. 
And she talked about kind of mindfulness and not getting swept up in it happens here. But if we can't do that, we don't even recognize that what we're feeling is shame. So recognizing Mm -hmm. it and recognizing the triggers. The second one is practicing critical awareness. And here she's talking about what are the expectations that led me here? Were they my expectations that I did not meet? Were they external expectations? And were they perceived expectations? So if taking that test, if I believe my parents expect that I will ace every test I take, I will get caught up in those negative feelings. So checking out the expectations. Yeah, I put reality check in brackets there. So that's sort of taking a step back and having that yeah critical awareness of what's going on just that sort of critical non-judgmental observation with actually what happened it's that you know you you speak about it a lot of times just just trying to remove yourself a bit from the overwhelming emotional aspect of it Mm -hmm. and yeah recognizing yeah these are the things i'm feeling and thinking but what actually happened Mm-hmm. Being more objective about it. Mm. Yeah, that would probably be a much more succinct way of putting it. <laughs> and the third one is basically reaching out, owning our stories, sharing them. Again, getting them out of the place of secrecy, getting the empathy, giving ourselves the empathy. And then the fourth one is speaking shame. Are we asking for what we need? Seeking empathy, seeking what we need in these moments rather than hiding from it and fearing that we won't get it. One of the things she covered in this chapter that I thought was really interesting is that she sees a lot of us misusing shame and thinking that if only people had more shame, they would behave better. And that we have been basically taught to see shame as the cure for bad behavior. And we are almost disgusted when we see people responding, being shameless when they've done something wrong. And she said that this couldn't be further from the truth, that more shame just compounds the problem. It's not a compass for moral behavior and actually more likely to drive destructive, painful, and self-aggrandizing behaviors from the person experiencing the shame. Where shame exists is almost always lacking empathy. So just pouring on more shame and encouraging people to be shameful is actually going to make the situations worse. Yes, I always remember a a podcast episode that she did. I think it was just before the national election in the US. And I think it was this episode where she talked about it. Um, But I think she also talked about it around when she was really digging into the Black Lives Matter movement as well. But it was that really that time of heightened, heightened emotions. And she said, I remember her saying this, she said, look, this is what I study. You know, I know the problems with imposing shame on people. But she said, In this current climate, if I thought that shame and or humiliation could be an effective social justice tool, I would use it. (laughs) I am in that place where if I thought it would work, I would use it. Absolutely. But I can tell you it never, 
ever does. Absolutely. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that was a really sort of a really good light bulb moment because it was at that time, not that that time has completely gone away, of course, but it was at that time where that's where it was all about. It was all about trying to shame people into doing what you wanted them to do, trying to align with your values. And it was, yeah, just, just hurling shame about. And of course it, it doesn't work. And I like what she said, what makes shame so dangerous is that where it exists, empathy is almost always absent. And I think not only shaming others, but shaming ourselves, again, mm. doesn't work. Empathy, self-compassion is the key to working beyond these difficult feelings and taking ownership of, of the behavior rather than sitting in a place of shame. She talked about empathy as being other-focused. It's an other-focused emotion. And in accessing empathy, when we think about ourselves, it's really only in order to call up a framework to understand the other's experience. So it's other-focused. Whereas shame is self-focused. Thoughts of others are only focused on what are they thinking about us. Mm -hmm. So again, enacting more shame on people only puts them in a position to need stronger tools to harm and hurt and distance. She also talks about shame as the birthplace of perfectionism. And again, it's externally driven by what will others think of me. She also then talked about perfectionism kills curiosity. And in order to achieve mastery, we require curiosity. And we need to see our mistakes as opportunities for learning. But we can't do this if we're caught up in perfectionism. Making mistakes is too costly. It keeps us from recovering and learning. People with high levels of perfectionistic traits are doomed to fail to meet their own expectations and expectations they assume held by others. They perceive themselves to consistently fall short of others' expectations. They behave in ways that result in perceived and actual exclusion and rejection by others. And people with high levels of perfectionism feel socially disconnected and actually have fewer social connections. So again, shame leads to perfectionism, which leads to disconnect and all of these negative experiences. Yes, I thought it was interesting what she was saying about that cycle that it sets off, mm -hmm. the behavior, and she talked about it being not only self-destructive, but an addictive mm -hmm. cycle but how that you if you get into that cycle what you're putting out in the world actually will attract mm -hmm. behaviors from others and opinions from others that is just going to help compound and you know keep that cycle churning round and round that's right and in that piece talking about the destructive and addictive belief system she described it as this primary thought that if I look perfect, live perfect, work perfectly, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, or blame. What we find when I fall short of being perfect, of course, then I experience shame, judgment, and blame. So as you just said, it just fuels that cycle and makes it even more complicated and exacerbates the problem rather than resolving the issue. She talked about the fact that most people who have very perfectionistic tendencies 
were raised in an environment where they were receiving positive feedback for accomplishments. So they learned to please, perfect, and perform. And it's in that performance way that they this addictive pattern grows. Interestingly, perfectionism tends to lead to depression and isolation. So definitely something we'd want to be more aware of. And as you said, the addictive part is as we seek out perfection more and more, we experience more of the shame and judgment when we fall short. So the, again, the pattern just grows. She then switched over to get back to guilt. Guilt is negatively associated with addiction, violence, aggression, and depression, eating disorders, and bullying. Whereas shame is positively associated with those. So guilt is a driving force to do better, learn from this experience, and not repeat it, whereas shame is not. She then talks about humiliation. So humiliation is that intensely painful feeling that we have done something and we have been unjustly degraded, ridiculed, or put down, or that our identity has been demeaned or devalued. And it's most similar to shame in that we feel flawed, but in humiliation, it's even worse because it feels unjust that it has been pointed out to us. And that it's even more dangerous than shame. And she always used to think the opposite. She thought shame was the more difficult because we believe we deserve the negative perception. But humiliation is being ridiculed, taunted, put down, or spurned. And these were the descriptions most identified with school shooters when they reflected on their experiences of being bullied or being harassed, it was that they were ridiculed, taunted, put down, or spurned. Bullying is not necessarily what makes people become violent or aggressive, but if they were bullied and felt humiliated, that's where the amplification comes from. And she talked about then politically and other places that this is really true, and she sees it as, and quotes other people who see it as one of the leading problems of how we interact with each other. And she ended with this quote on this topic. She said, it's perhaps the most toxic social dynamic of our age. And I think of this, especially now in social media, she talked about, Mm. not only can I humiliate you in front of five people, I can humiliate you in front of thousands of people. I can do it so publicly. Mm. So the, the ramifications are so much worse. And then the very last thing, she does talk a little bit about embarrassment, but by then it kind of pales in comparison to the others. But embarrassment is kind of short-lived. If you think about it, oftentimes we blush when we're embarrassed. That's short-lived. It's a rush. And oftentimes our embarrassed feelings, again, they become kind of humorous to us, but they're not humiliation. They're, they don't bring about a sense of shame. We know that, hey, we've done something that didn't fit in this situation. It was a social faux pas or I don't remember the other two, but anyway, it was something kind of minor. We feel uncomfortable about it. And then that passes. Yeah. It's like you said earlier, it can feel intensely uncomfortable in the moment and it can almost Mm. feel close to humiliation in the moment. But it's the kind of thing that when you've gotten over it, it's a really funny story to Mm -hmm relate back Mm -hmm. and you know other people will laugh along with you and you can kind of you know relish that Mm -hmm. embarrassment it's a funny thing you can laugh at yourself but you don't feel 
I guess you don't feel as intensely uncomfortable as you might have felt in the moment, but it's a, it's a funny thing to relay later on. But I thought this humiliation piece was very interesting. And you can feel it, actually. If, you, if you've got that, the intensity of shame and you throw that element of humiliation into the mix where these intense, shameful feelings that you have... But if you're feeling that they've been put on you unjustly, <laughs> that will start sparking the, you know, ideas of revenge and fighting back and just getting into an escalation of, mm -hmm. of shame throwing, I guess. You can see how it, could, how it will just yeah. keep going and how contagious it is as well. She said something, didn't she, about how when you get into this humiliation you can actually garner support you can actually start to form groups mm -hmm. and of course we you know we've seen this and social media as you say just absolutely fuels it mm -hmm. almost out of control it's really like throwing petrol on the fire isn't it and if you think about all of that it makes so much sense how all of these things are are tied in if I'm not sitting in a place of harsh self-judgment, I can be embarrassed and it will stop there. But if I am more kind of shame-based, I'm going to take that embarrassing moment and amplify it and feel probably more that it's unjust, worry more about people's perceptions about me and kind of blow this into a bigger experience. I thought the humiliation piece, I almost wish she had spent more time on that. Mm. If it is so significant in our political milieus and social media and places that what we do to humiliate people, how damaging that is. I believe she quoted Elie Wiesel, who was a concentration camp survivor. I think this is whose work she was citing. She said that a quote that he said that always stood out to her was something like, to never let anyone be humiliated in your presence mm. because of the profound effect that it has. Um, again, different if they can be embarrassed or experience it on a, a lower scale. But once it becomes humiliation, it's going to further deteriorate everything that's happening. Yes, I think that's what's so toxic about it. And I wonder if it's a way of displacing shame. If you start to feel shame, you find a way to flip it into humiliation so that you can throw it back. Mm -hmm. And how you often see something that could be a really intense debate between, say, people with opposing political views what goes from a very heated debate into humiliation where you start throwing a personal attack. And that's mm -hmm. what is on such a knife edge, I think, with social media. And, and that's you, you put that element into the mix. You throw the humiliation element into the mix and it just goes out of control. Absolutely. Whereas, what, and this is what she was trying to push forward, I seem to remember with that episode I cited earlier was... That no, you need to do the opposite. You need to approach with empathy and you need to respond with empathy. You need to mm -hmm. 
come from a, a position of curiosity and trying to engage with the other person, the other person's point of view, trying to find a way in to see it from their perspective. It's oh so very hard to do. But if you want change, that's the only way you're going to get it. <laughs> like she said, if I thought shaming would work, I would be using it right now. It just doesn't. That's right. So don't, there's just no point in doing it. Absolutely. So I think we've hit all of the heavy things for today. <laughs> I look forward to the next chapter uh, when you tell us the next step in this book. But I hope everyone can just reflect on these things. And obviously, I'm not encouraging anyone to practice humiliation or shame, but to really take this in and, and check where can they use more self-compassion? Where can they use empathy with other people to find more understanding rather than to give a shaming response? So I hope this chapter was helpful to people. Yes, it's all too easy to do. It's, it's very contagious, I think, especially when it comes to social media. So it's definitely a chapter to go and read and listen to the details yourself. There's some interesting studies and all sorts of things. In the meantime, when we come back next week with another, I have a feeling, rather heavy chapter. <laughs> I think they're so. all heavy from here on out. <laughs> they are, although there is another one that I would like to do that is much more lighthearted. Very good. So in the meantime, I hope you have a very wonderful week. Take care, Daisy. See you soon, everybody. Bye-bye.